Well, I want to, uh, before we get into today's sermon, uh, reflect just a little bit on last week because, you know, I got to see every service, all three services. We had um, several hundred men, young men, men in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s come up. And we actually had a photographer take some pictures from the side angle there and decided not to use them because they were so intimate. Um, the tears, um, some, some men with anguish in their faces some with joy and relief, some fathers with their arms around their sons up here together because they're walking with Christ together and such a beautiful thing. And then we talked about it as a staff and Matt told me the worship team was in tears as they sang the blessing over these men that it actually moved them in a way they didn't expect. And then I heard that when, even though the lights were down, I couldn't see out there that many of you were weeping and praying. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful morning. And I got two messages from women this week that said we're dealing with the same issues in our house it's not just a male issue and i know that it was father's day and we focused on the men and i know many men have that issue but there's a lot of daughters who are dealing with strained relationships with fathers a dad told me after church he said you know i've struggled with how to show affection to my three daughters because it's just cultures made it feel really awkward and so guys uh, we we got to move forward from last week and use it as a foundation to build on and I pray that you just don't look back and think everything was was fixed because of last Sunday it was a start it was maybe a start of healing for many of you um, Satan's going to tell you to pick up that hurt again pick up that woundedness and own it because that's been such a part of your life I can't imagine being in your 70s or 80s and carrying a lifetime of woundedness but for some of you it's like luggage that you've dropped at the foot of the cross and Satan's going to say, hey, you forgot that, pick it up. And you have to say, no, it's already been dealt with. Continue to uh, live in a spirit of grace, in forgiveness. You can't change the past, but you can change your connection to the past. And then um, get help if you need help, if you need ongoing support. Our uh, care center does a great job of offering well care classes to help people through difficult times, healing journey, well care, uh, grief, grief share. I mean, all kinds of support groups. If you need a, a team of people to help you process some healing with, they will help you or they'll direct you to those that can help you. And maybe you just need a counselor to talk to that they could be of, of infinite value to you as well. And just keep talking to your Heavenly Father. I mean, I found for myself, He's always available 24-7, always accessible. He's the only perfect dad you'll ever have. Dads are great, but He's the only perfect one. And He's there for you all the time. So keep leaning into Him. The fact that Jesus needed his heavenly father to do his ministry just tells me how much more do I need my heavenly father to do what God's called me to do. And then um, ladies, keep praying for the men in your life, your husbands, your dads, your boys, um, your girls as well. But I just think it's so hard in our culture right now um, to be a godly man. And so we need all the support we can get. And guys, if you can get here for Promise Keepers next month, we'd love to have you. There's information in the bulletin of how you can plug into that. Today, we're, um, we're going to continue with this series, Just Jesus. And we've been looking at um, what I think are some of the other aspects of Jesus that maybe we haven't spent much time thinking about. Parts of his personality, parts of his life. I mean, if you were to, to describe Jesus to someone, I'm sure most of us would say, well, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he's kind. And uh, media and art and music and all that has a way of portraying to us the sweeter side of Jesus. I mean, the Jesus on the stained glass window that has a glowing ball around his head. I mean, he's just, he's, he looks peaceful, he's perfect. We like that image of Jesus. But I want to tell you that there are some parts of Jesus that maybe make you uncomfortable. The fact that Jesus would turn tables over in anger, the, the, the fact that Jesus would sometimes use um, 
pretty pointed words to some of the people that um, severely disappointed him, the religious leaders, calling them snakes and brood of vipers and, you know, empty tombs. Or the fact that Jesus would, would say that there's a place that, that those who reject him would spend an eternity in, in a place called hell. I mean, we struggle with thinking, that's the same Jesus? I, I like the sweet Jesus. I don't like this other part. But they're all part of Jesus. They're all part of his personality and his character traits. John Eldridge, in his book Outlaw, says he received one time a coffee mug. It had a picture of Jesus and then the words, Jesus saves, on it. But he noticed that when he poured hot coffee in it, that it changed. All of a sudden, Jesus lost his beard, and it said, Jesus shaves. <laughs> and his son said, Dad, do you think Jesus would think that was funny? He said, well, son, if Jesus was a man like the rest of us, I think he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but we're going to hide that cup from the church folks. Because <laughs> some people have a hard time with the Jesus with a sense of humor. And some people have a hard time with the Jesus who gets angry. But they're all part of Jesus. They're all part of who he is. In fact, John Eldridge says in that book, if you do not know Jesus as a person, if you do not know his remarkable personality, playful, cunning, fierce, impatient, with all that is religious, kind, creative, irreverent, and funny, you've been cheated. Because the Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. The Prince of Peace is, is, a, is the fierce warrior. And the one who came to unite mankind also has come to be a forceful wedge. And I say that because of a passage that I think is very, very uncomfortable. It seems almost contradictory when we read it. That we said, like, is that the same Jesus I read in the rest of the New Testament? Because listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would, it, would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Does it seem like that's a different Jesus? Doesn't it sound like it's contradictory to his whole purpose of coming to be the prince of peace? Not so much if you understand that in order to bring peace, Jesus caused division. See, he says that his coming came with fire. The coming of, of Jesus brought fire from heaven. I, I almost think of the superhero, like casting a fireball from the sky. But, but what he meant was he was beginning to bring something that was very intense. Now, John the Baptist said of Jesus that he would come. Though John the Baptist baptized people in water, he said, Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is linked with fire. Now, that's one of the um, metaphors of fire in Scripture. It refers to God's presence. So you have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they sinned and they were excommunicated from the garden. It says a, a fiery swore, sword uh, protected them or guarded them from the garden. They couldn't enter. When, when Sodom and Gomorrah was judged for their immorality, fire came from heaven and consumed them. When the tribe of, of Korah rebelled against God in the wilderness, fire came from heaven and took their lives. When the Egyptians would not let the Hebrew children go, God sent hail mixed with fire. You know, we see this picture all through the Bible of judgment and fire kind of going together. And so John the Baptist said of Jesus, 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So he kind of gives, actually, the explanation of what this fire means. It's a fire of judgment. He says it's like the winnowing fork. You take the fork, you throw the wheat in the air, the breeze blows the husk away, and the heavier wheat falls to the ground. You keep doing that until it's very easy to identify the wheat. You gather that, you take it away, you, you grind it, make it into bread or, or, or some other thing that's edible. And what do you do with the chaff, the husks? You burn it. It's not good for anything. And he says when Jesus comes, he has a winnowing fork in his hand. And he's going to be separating like a fork. He, he's going to, literally, a fork in the road. It's going to, people are going to find themselves as wheat or chaff. So already we understand Jesus is coming. He's, he's bringing some kind of division. So in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, God is so frustrated with his people that he cannot even find one person who will stand in the gap and intercede for the people. Not one person. Not one person. So he says, therefore, I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. And so this concept of judgment with fire travels into the New Testament. Jesus says of the branches that don't produce fruit, he says, they're all gathered up, they're thrown into the fire, and then they're burned. He says of the, the people who look at those in need, the, the naked, the thirsty, those who need clothes, those in prison, he says, those who care for them are like the sheep, and they'll enter into the Father's presence. But the goats, they will go away, they'll be sent away to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for humans, but he said, if you're going to act like the devil, you get to go be with the devil. In this place that the Bible calls hell, it's not a very pretty place, but there's fire because the fire represents judgment. The author of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, man, I wish, I wish this fire was already kindled. And what he's referring to is there is coming a judgment of God that Jesus himself will witness. In fact, even more, Jesus himself will experience. He will be the kindling. He will experience in his own body the judgment of God because that's what's going to happen when he goes to the cross. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. Now, this was after he was baptized in water in the River Jordan. He's speaking of a different kind of baptism, a baptism of pain and suffering and judgment where he will be immersed, in a sense, overwhelmed by the judgment of God. He will suffer for the sins of man. One time his um, two disciples, James and John, said, Jesus, when you go into glory, could we sit on either side of you? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? He said, oh, you have no idea what you ask. Yes, that, that would be a privilege, but you cannot be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. Mark 10, 38. See, the Lamb of God is going to be slain. He's going to shed his blood. Remember in the Old Testament when, it, when a lamb was sacrificed? Uh, they were slaughtered. They shed its blood. But you know what else happened to that lamb? They were put on the fire. They were put on the fire because it, it was both the shedding of the blood and the fire, the consuming fire that atoned for people's sins. And see, James and John are unable to do that because they're, they're mortals. Uh, sin has so infiltrated our lives. Think about it. Is there any area of your life that sin has not affected? Your thinking, uh, 
your, your eyesight, what you look at, how you interpret things, your, um, your interactions with people, your motives, the way you handle your, your finances, your, your physical appetites. I mean, sin has, has really corrupted every part of our lives. That if you were to try to purge us of sin, there'd be nothing left. We'd be like consumed. There's nothing left. But it was different with Jesus because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was the purest human that's ever lived. He's like pure gold. So you take pure gold and then you lay a wood veneer over it, which is in a sense like our sins were laid on him. So Jesus now is covered with, a, with this layer of wood. When the fire comes, it consumes the wood. It, it does not affect the gold. And so Jesus suffered our sins on his behalf, but himself, that's why he could survive the judgment of God. He was pure. He was able to endure God's justice because he himself had never sinned. But see, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire upon the earth. I came to initiate the time of judgment. It'll start right here with me on the cross. Then he says this cross then becomes kind of like a line in the sand, a dividing point in history. It was an end to the old system of law and rules and rituals, and it opened up a new way of relating to God. Now we can have a relationship with God. We can have intimacy with him. Jesus became the mediator between us and God and the mediator of a new covenant. Remember when Jesus was born and the angels came to the shepherds and says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, peace on earth, goodwill to men, peace on earth. The Prince of Peace. Jesus is coming. Because when sin is removed, we can have peace with God. God wants us to have peace with him. But he also wants us to have peace with one another. This dividing wall that separates us from other people. Jew against Gentile. You know, male against female. Slave against master. Those are all torn down in the cross. That's ideal. That's what God intends. That we would be united with other people. But the reality is, we still struggle. We still struggle here in America with getting along with one another. We still struggle within our own families to get along with one another. So even though it's possible, there is... There is a, a sense of division that occurs, and, and it occurs between those who follow Jesus primarily and those who don't. See, what Jesus is doing is causing us to choose sides, and he wants us to be on God's side, to leave the kingdom over here to be part of his kingdom. But if we refuse to do that, he says, it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be warfare between us. So in John chapter 9, for example, you know, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire. That's just speaking. This is my mission. I've come to do this. He says in John 9, I, I've come uh, into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. He said this when he healed the blind man. He healed the blind man and the religious leaders got all uptight about it. So, so they said, well, you can't heal that guy. He, he sinned from the time he was little or maybe his parents sinned, but he was being punished by God. Only God could forgive him for that. Hmm, maybe Jesus is God. So here's what happens. Jesus runs into this blind man and says, you know what? I came so people like you could see and people like them who think they see will be truly blind. See, Jesus, Jesus came to cause a division. Either you've seen the light or you don't. Either your eyes are open or they're closed. Three chapters later in chapter 12, he says, I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. 
You either live in the light or the darkness. You have a choice. Do you want to stay where you are? You want to come over on the side of Jesus? And so just the natural effect of Jesus' ministry is if you don't want to come over here and you're going to stay over there, we're going to have a problem. There's going to be division. There's going to be conflict. You either believe that I'm here to save you and that, that you can be forgiven of your sins, that I paid your debt on the cross, or are you going to say, mm-mm, no way. And that's going to be the problem. That's where the division is, called, is, is caused. Many people loved what Jesus said. Many people heard the truth and said, man, that's, that's what I love. I feel free. I mean, my eyes have been opened. And other people said, I hate that guy. We should kill him. I mean, think about it. The same thing. The very same words that Jesus spoke affected two groups of people in very different ways. One time Jesus was eating with a, some religious leaders, and they were so big on the rituals. You've got to wash the dishes. You've got to wash your hands before you eat. It's all, you've got to be pure in God's eyes. And Jesus leaned back to one of those Pharisees and says, hey, dude, you know what? Washing those dishes doesn't really affect anything because it's not what a, what a man eats and takes into his mouth. It's what's in his heart and comes out of his mouth that corrupts him. And his disciples went, oh my goodness, he said, what? Because here's what the disciples said. Do you know, Jesus, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus, you're offending people. Jesus, you're ticking some people off. Well, when, when Jesus is on the offensive, he becomes offensive. Because people aren't going to like necessarily what he said. That's why sometimes you hear something, you go, man, that offended me. You have to ask, is it because what was said was offensive or because your heart was in a place where it was offended? Because two people can hear the very same thing and only one be offended. So maybe if you're offended, it says more about you than what was said. Because think about this. Some things we may find real offensive, like uh, a blaring siren at two in the morning. Like, oh my goodness, you just woke me up in my sleep. Did you really have to do that? Man, I'm, I'm ticked off now. Or if you've got a spouse laying on the floor who just had a heart attack and you hear that siren, you go, thank you, God. That sound is sweet right now. The very same sound, the blast of the horn, alarms one and comforts the other. And so the truth of Jesus is like that. Sometimes Jesus speaks something that's very hard. It shakes us. It rattles us. And, and some of us go, like, I don't like that. I don't like what the Bible says about that. And others will go, wow, I needed to hear that because... My eyes are now opened. I, 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 I have clarity now about something, and I have peace because of this, this hard thing that Jesus said. So Jesus speaks truth, and sometimes it offends people. The cross, the Scripture says, is offensive. Jews and Gentiles said, kings don't die on crosses between criminals. You know, we're, we're smarter than that. We're, we're better than that. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, well, the foolishness of God is the wisdom of God. See, it was, it was in Jesus' death on the cross that he defeated the powers of darkness. He truly was a king. He just fought a spiritual battle that they couldn't see. When Paul writes in Ro the, the letter to the Romans, he quotes an Old Testament passage from Psalms. Behold, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus will offend some people. That's just the fact. He's a rock of offense. The same Jesus who loves the lepers cares for the widows, opposes the proud, is the same one who makes people very uncomfortable when he says there's only one way to, to the Father and it's through me. 
And that if you don't give me your life and walk with me, that you have a whole eternity apart from me in a place called hell. And we say, well, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't know if I can believe in a, in a God who treats people that way. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. What if you were given the opportunity to sit down across the table from Jesus and argue that case? I mean, think about it. Just, and Jesus, I mean, Jesus isn't, he's not out of control. Jesus is, is responding very calmly. But you say to him, hey, Jesus, you know, I love you. But I just don't get why you have to sound so cruel sometimes. You know, it just seems to go against your nature. Um, if that's the way you're going to be, then I'm going to have a hard time trusting you. And Jesus says, well, you don't, uh, you don't have a problem with my love, but I, just, I don't think you understand my justice. And, and you say to him, well, I get justice, and I understand why someone like a Hitler or a Bin Laden or Jeffrey Epstein should be punished in an eternal flame. But, you know, most people are good, decent human beings, and it just doesn't seem fair or loving. And Jesus responds and says, well, let's talk about those that you say are good and decent. Let's just see how good and decent they are. Do they consistently put me first? Do they start their day, their, their weekday with me? Do they set aside time to actually worship me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do they thank me for the privilege of having breath and life? Do they seriously listen and read my messages that I gave them in the Bible? Do they, do they return at least 10% of all that I provided to them to show that I am the giver of all good things? Do they serve others in my name and tell other people about me? Well, that's sure asking a lot. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus says. Are you saying I'm unreasonable to expect that my people made in my image would serve me? Well, I wouldn't say it's unreasonable. It's just, Jesus is like this. It's just hard for people to think about you every day and make it all about you. And, and, and Jesus scratches his head and goes, okay, um, tell me again why you want to spend forever in heaven with me. I mean, our arguments pale we think that Jesus came to save us from our sins. He didn't come to cast us into the darkness. But if we choose to reject him, there are consequences, harsh consequences. I mean, I love what John Eldridge again says in that book, Outlaw. He says, Jesus is a truth teller. You can count on him to tell you the truth in the best possible way for you to hear it. Jesus is a straight shooter. Sometimes he shoots us so straight, it practically straightens you out as it passes through you. I love that. It straightens you out as it passes through you. Truth can straighten you, and truth can agitate you to the core. And you get to choose how you respond. But here's the thing about truth. You can't be noncommittal. You can't sit on the fence with truth. You've got to get it, yes, it's true, or, or no, it's not true. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground with truth. You're in or you're out. You either believe he is who he says he is, or he's not. And that's why the call of Jesus ends up confronting our family loyalties. His primary goal is peace. Jesus wants to bring peace. Peace with us and God, peace with us and others. And when we have peace with God, it's secure. We have that peace. But the peace with others has to be worked out in our lives. And he wants us to get along. He wants us to love our families. He wants us to love our friends. He wants us to love even our enemies. However... The harsh reality is that it won't always go that way. Jesus says, fathers, 
are going to turn against their sons. And sons turn against their fathers. Mothers turn against their daughters. And daughters turn against their mothers. And mothers-in-law against their daughters-in-law. I mean, in-laws will become outlaws just because of Jesus. And you know what? Jesus says, that's what happened in my own family. Do you know that Jesus has some siblings? The Bible doesn't tell us about any of them except one named John, or James. James actually is not a believer, as far as we know, during Jesus' ministry. After the resurrection, he appears. He becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. But during Jesus' earthly days, Joseph and Mary had other children. And I have to believe, the Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I'd, I'd have to believe these siblings have heard who Jesus is from either Jesus or Mary, or maybe both. I mean, can't you picture them going to synagogue as a family and Jesus goes, that one's about me. You know, that, that, that scripture, that's, that's me too. And his, and his siblings kind of get ticked off. Like, who do you think you are, God? He goes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if it's not Jesus, if Jesus was like quiet about it, don't you think Mary would say, you guys, take it easy on your brother. Didn't I tell you about his birth and what God did when I was, before I married your father? How he became miraculously um, with child and gave birth to him? And that God has his hand upon him in a special way that he is the Messiah, the promised one who's going to take away our sins? But these siblings didn't believe it. It wasn't a family of believers. And, and you think like if anybody had great influence in the home, it would be that home. Mary and Jesus, man, you got it. It's, man, that's, it's going to be easy. But even then it wasn't. And, and just to give you a little bit of relief, if you're a Christian parent, it's really hard to pass on faith to your kids. It's like they have to discover it themselves. And whatever Jesus told his siblings, whatever Mary tried to do to convince them, wasn't enough. So Jesus, when he started his ministry, his popularity is growing and people are just hounding him all the time, like they're seeing the miracles. And they're, they're actually willing to skip meals to follow Jesus. He can't get a break. He can't, he can't get away even to take a snack for himself. It says here in Mark 3, Then he went home, speaking of Jesus, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Is Jesus doing that again? Oh, my goodness, that lunatic. You know, James, go out there and get your brother inside. Tell him to be quiet. You know, his own siblings don't believe him. And so when um, some religious leaders come into town, they say, oh, yeah, he's got a demon. He's, he's filled with Beelzebub. Jesus, Jesus says, really? You think I'm filled with Satan and I'm going around casting Satan out of people? Think about it. House divided against itself won't stand. Doesn't, doesn't add up. And then right after that little story, it says this. Uh, this is again in um, Mark chapter 3. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, like, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You hear what Jesus is saying? I have a biological family. But my real family is my spiritual family of every man and woman who chooses to do God's will. That's the real family. You know, in our lives, it's, it's pretty easy to give your life to Christ and pretty soon you find where your family stands. 
you start to run into conflicts with your calendar. You know, I want to go to church. I want to go to youth group. I want to do this. And family says, oh, you know, you're taking a little bit too seriously. You're getting too much into God. You know, you can, you can forget God about that. You know, all of a sudden there's this clashing of calendars, of values, especially if it's a divided a marriage where one's a believer and one's a not, where one says, you know, I really want to give generously to this cause. And spouse says, oh, you know, that's too much money. You know, all of a sudden there's conflicts over, over spending, just all the conversations you have about issues, one of you is basing it on Scripture, the other one's not. You can see how this can rattle a family. And, you know, Jesus told his disciples, guys, it's going to cost you a lot to follow me. He's just bracing them. Guys, I could give you the pep talk that says, we're going to go out there and win the world. Let's go. But he says, guys, it's going to be hard. People are going to like you. And you're going to have to pick up your crosses if you are going to be crucified today. Are you still in? He says you're going to have to love me more than your own family. And he says it in Luke. The way Luke writes it is such strong language. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children of brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Is that in the Bible? Why, why would Jesus say hate your family? Aren't we supposed to love our family? Absolutely. He wants you to love your family, just not more than him. See, our, our common understanding of hate means to despise, you know, to really uh, dislike something. That, that's not the, the, the meaning of the word back then. Hate actually meant to love less. So we have the story in the, old, in the book of Genesis where it says that Jacob loved his wife Rachel and hated his wife Leah. Now, he had children with Leah. He slept with Leah. You know, it's not like he despised this woman. What he was saying was, I love Rachel more than Leah. And what Jesus is saying is, you should love me more than your own life. He doesn't say go out and just kill your life, hate your life. He says, no, love me even more than your own life. Your own hobbies, your career, your possessions, you know, all of that, love me even more than that. Love me more than your family. Think about it. You need to love me more than your mom and dad, more than your sons or daughters. You know where it strikes me? Love me even more than your grandkids. Would you be willing to choose me over them? Now you see why this can cause division in a family, especially if your family is not walking with Jesus alongside you. And I think for believers, we run into these situations where our loyalty to Jesus is tested. You know, I've known, I've known families that said, hey, we, you won't see us much um, at church in the summer because, you know, our son's in the baseball, traveling baseball league, and they play on Sundays. Well, I hope you go to church on Saturday somewhere or another day. You just don't totally skip church to make sports the priority unless, unless the spiritual education of your children is less important than the recreational skills. I mean, there's issues that come in our life where we're really challenged. You know, as, as parents, we make purchases, and then we say, like, oh, I just bought the new car. I can't give generously to God's work because we got these bills to pay now. Well, where was God in that decision? Where was Jesus? How was he first? That's the key thing. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to take second place to anything. Anything. Not even the beautiful granddaughter or grandson. No. He says, I'm first. Love them, but less than me. Love me first. The gifts he gives, your kids, your parents, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your babies, your health, your job. Those are gifts. He doesn't, he doesn't say... Uh, Dislike them, be ungrateful for them. 
He says, just don't let the gifts become a God. When the gifts become gods, we're in trouble. And, and you know as well as I how quickly something like that, something good in our life, can take the place of dominating our lives. So how do we deal with those? What do you, what do, you do when your family uh, that, that has unbelievers comes to visit you? I know. I, I've always you know, wondered when someone has relatives and say, hey, we won't be in church Sunday because you know, our family's going to be in town and they don't, they don't, they don't go to church. Okay, they don't have to go to church, but why would you not go to church? Why, why would you not make time in your week to say, hey, uh, we're, not, we're not forcing anything on you, but as for me and my house, this is what we do. And so, you know, go earlier. Go to the early service. Have more time in your day. But what are you saying to your family when you say, oh, God, God can take a backseat to family on this day? It's the Broncos game. We got tickets. We're not going to church today because we're going to the Broncos game. Well, there's other churches in town that have Saturday services. Did you go there? Why do, we, why do we let other things bump God thinking God understands? Have you asked him if he understood? <laughs> Did you ask him, God, is it okay if we not worship you today because right now this is a big deal for us? Now, I'm not telling you what to think or do. I'm just saying I think, I think it's a fair question for us to ask, is Jesus first in this decision? Is Jesus first in what we're trying to communicate? What's most important? Because what Jesus promises us is, yes, you may have difficulties in your family. Ideally, yeah, it'd be great if they all believe. But you have a family that I'm building of people who are doing the will of God. And they're going to be here forever. Because they're the ones you're going to spend eternity with. See, Jesus told his own disciples, and everyone who's left houses and brothers and sisters Father, mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I know from my own experience, man, uh, some of you had maybe tighter families than mine, and I love my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, but once I discovered my spiritual family, man, I connected with those people so quickly. We went to such a deeper level of, of, of understanding with one another, loving each other, and when you're walking in the same direction, you're both trying to please God, I mean, that family that, that God had provided in the church became so powerful in my life. Now I have thousands, literally thousands, of brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers in God's family. And, and you're part of that. I have this huge family. It doesn't mean I, I forget my biological family. It just means this is the family that Jesus says is going to endure. The Bible says the world and its desires will pass away, but the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. Lives forever. I want to be with the family that lives forever. So what should we do with our biological families? If Jesus says, just be prepared, there's, there's going to be disruption within your family, well, here's a few things I, I think we all can do. Number one, don't expect that everyone's going to like you. You become a Christian, you may find someone in your family doesn't like it. You may find that people are going to treat you a little bit different, that maybe they're going to persecute you, call you a Jesus freak or whatever. There's an Eastern mystic who said a person of great love has no enemies, but I can't think of anybody who was more loving than Jesus and he had enemies. So for us to think like, you know, if I became a Christian, I thought I'd just get along with everybody. It's not going to happen. In fact, Jesus said, if it does happen, woe to you and all men speak well of you. You're probably not doing something right because not everyone will be happy with your positions and your beliefs and your practices. Jesus says you've got to choose. Either you love him 
or you hate him. You're on one side or the other. You cannot make everyone happy, so just choose to make God happy. Don't expect everyone to love you. Secondly, uh, that doesn't mean you need to be divisive. Get rid of a divisive attitude. You don't need to have a divisive attitude. It doesn't give us permission to go and be arrogant and, and bashing people over the head with Scripture. You know, sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to tell you the truth. And then we brutalize people. We should do everything we can to win our families over. In fact, I think a great example is when, when the Scripture says, if a, if a believing wife has an unbelieving husband... She should, she should work to win him over, not with her words, but with her lifestyle. Think about that. You may have family members who are tired of hearing you talk about Jesus. But maybe the language that would speak to them would be the language of love. Be there for them. Serve their needs. Care for them. Minister to them so then their ears would open up so they could hear the truth when they're ready. But I've, I've known so few people who've given their lives to Christ because we've debated them into the kingdom. It rarely happens. People get turned off by that. And yet we can, we can kind of puff our chest and say, well, that's the truth. That's just the truth. Yeah, but where's the love? Where's the love? We've got, to, we've got to put those two together. And love can speak powerfully. Seek to win your family over, not with a divisive attitude, but with a loving one. If they're offended, let it be because of the gospel, not your personality. And then third, above all, seek to do the will of God. Jesus said, his family are those who seek to do the will of God. Not those who wear the t-shirt that says it or those who have the sticker on their car that say it, but those actually do the will of God. You know, I, I, there, there, I've seen people with hats and shirts that say America first, uh, but I, I want to I wear one that says Jesus first. That everything I would do and say and believe indicates that Jesus is first in my life. And not just for, for me, but even for my family to know that, that Jesus is first. There's just really no way around it. The cross becomes a dividing point. You're in this kingdom, you're in that kingdom. You're living the old life, you're living the new life. You're on your way to heaven, and you're all on the way to suffer God's judgment in hell. It's, it's one or the other. But, but Jesus gives us a choice to choose him. That's what I love about it, that even though that Jesus divides the cross cuts me off from my past. I love that. Jesus divides me from my past. I can let it go. Jesus gives me a whole new future. Jesus, Jesus separates me. The gospel separates us, but, but it separates those who seek him and love him from those who don't. And that's just, that's the stark reality. It's not that Jesus doesn't love everyone. He just wants everyone to love him in return. My question for you is, can you believe in a Jesus like that? Can you believe in a Jesus who would suffer for you so you could be free from your sins? Do you believe in a Jesus who says, I will suffer the fire of judgment on me so you don't have to. But also, if you don't accept what I've done for you, you'll have to suffer that. That's the same Jesus. That's why we plead with you. Give your life to Jesus. He wants you in his family. He really does. And as we talked last week, you can be his beloved son or daughter if you surrender your life to him. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and if you're home, you can stand with us as we close in prayer. And, and while we do that, prayer partners, if you'd make your way up front, all our, all our prayer partners will be available to pray with you. Because you may be in a place in your life where you need to kind of pound a, pound a stake in the ground and make a, make a decision to say, I'm going to cross the line today. I want it to be known that I'm for Jesus, that he's first in my life. 
He's not just a priority. He is top in my life. And this is the day you can do that. And so after we pray, you can just come up, see any of our prayer partners. They'll, they'll lead you into that relationship with Christ. They'll talk to you about next steps you can take. Or if you're carrying some woundedness in your relationship with the Lord and just need to get back on track with Jesus, maybe last week did stir up some things for you, especially for, for you ladies that didn't get a chance to come forward. You want to come up for prayer as well. Our prayer partners are here for you. If you're at home and we can pray for you, send us a prayer request. Let us know how we can cover you as well. But right now, Father, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for sending him to suffer for us, to be baptized with the baptism that we would never want to undergo, the baptism of judgment. And thank you, Jesus, that though sometimes you say things that are hard, you sound the alarm to awaken us to something that is good and comforting because it's so good to know the truth and so good to know that our sins can be forgiven in you. So Jesus, we praise you this day. May you always be first in our hearts, in our lives, in our words and our deeds. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You agree? Live like that. Live for Jesus. If you need prayer again, our prayer partners are here for you.